Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Skip Bayless Show, episode 57. This, as always, is the un-undisputed. This is everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will tell you why what I went through with my parents growing up impacts my view of Ja Morant. And I'll tell you why I've probably fallen right back into the Dallas Cowboy trap. And I will tell you why Michael Jordan's failure as the owner and operator of the Charlotte Hornets has actually validated and exonerated me. And I will tell you why I have not given up on Lonzo Ball or Baker Mayfield and I will also answer many of your great questions today, such as about my all-time favorite show that I've uh, ever done on either the networks I've been on, and especially this, the nicest athlete slash celebrity I have ever met, and I think my answer will shock you. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I must admit, I'm a little lost on what just happened with Ja Morant. Maybe I'm a lot lost. I, I feel a little misled, maybe even duped. I love Ja as a player. I root for Ja as a player. Now I'm trying to root for him as a person. As you know, fairly recently, Ja was involved in not one, two, or three. He was involved in five different incidents, three of which involved guns. While the police were called, or at least notified, as a result of the other two incidents. The fifth incident, of course, occurred at 5.20 a.m. in a strip club in Denver, Colorado, after Jaws Memphis Grizzlies had lost a big measuring stick of a Western Conference game 
to the Nuggets. Ja had played poorly in the second half of that game as his team had blown an eight-point halftime lead. And for some reason, Ja Moran appeared to be celebrating in an IG Live post, an IG Live post that he chose to post. This wasn't cell phone video from some random onlooker. Ja chose to go live on Instagram and dangle a gun. He appeared to be intoxicated or in some altered state. The NBA confirmed that he was intoxicated. And the next morning I thought, oh man, is Commissioner Adam Silver ever going to drop the hammer on John Morant? This was just so brazen given the previous four incidents. People, people kept telling me, kept hearing from across the table from my partner, Shannon Sharp, Jaws just running with the wrong crowd. He's surrounding himself with the wrong people. But you had to start wondering if Jaw had become one of those people. The Grizzlies, as you know, immediately suspended Jaw for two games. Okay, two games. And Ja, then probably with some assistance and guidance from his agent or other advisors, quickly put out his own statement saying it was time for him to get the help he needs. Wow. I'm thinking, wow. Okay, he's admitting he does need help which is always the hardest first step. Nike, with which obviously Jaw has a big deal, immediately followed with a statement that said it was going to support Jaw because he was taking the time to get the help that he needs. Hmm. Then Memphis moved the suspension to four games. Okay, two to four. Now, Powerade dropped jaw immediately. I got that. But Nike hung in. Then ESPN reported that jaw was going to a, excuse me, a facility in Florida to get help. Counseling facility, rehab clinic, wasn't sure, but some facility in Florida. Now this thing really seems serious treatment center. This is good. These are all very positive signs. Did he have an alcohol or some kind of drug issue that he needed to address? If so, he definitely would be gone for the rest of this season, I thought. These programs, with which I'm fairly familiar, can take usually at least three-ish months, maybe even longer, depending on the depth of the problem. Remember, Tiger Woods once checked himself into a facility in Mississippi to help with what was termed a sex addiction, excuse me, sexual addiction. At least Tiger stayed, as he said, for 45 days. So, all of us in the media backed off with our criticism of Job because it was time to applaud him. 
We felt for him. We wished him well as he sought treatment in Florida. Then, boom, he was back, huh? He couldn't have been at this Florida facility for more than, I don't know, three or four days if he went at all. Suddenly, the NBA announced that his suspension would be lifted after eight games, that, that he was cleared to play this past Monday if he was in basketball shape. What? To me, Ja had played with the help of the NBA and the Memphis Grizzlies and his advisors, he had played the sympathy card. The poor kid had looked in the mirror and had gone to rehab to get straight and get right, or so it had appeared. And there he was this past Monday, back on the bench in street clothes, giddy with excitement, aching, to get back on the basketball court, get right back in the middle of things, cheerleading with his out front body language that said, I am back every time out. He jumped in the middle of the huddle and the camera went to ja, ja, ja. When the game ended, ja interrupted an on-court interview with his seldom interviewed teammate Aldama with a rap lyric from a song about gun violence. I won't quote it. I don't need to belabor the point that I made on Undisputed. But look, in and of itself, did reciting that lyric on camera, interrupting that interview, was it any big deal? No, it was no big deal. Obviously, a whole lot of rap songs deal with gun violence. But Ja had said that as he came back, he was now capable of making better decisions. And it just struck me that if he were truly contrite about the five recent incidents that he was involved in, that on his very first night back, even before he played in a game, he would have stayed away from using that rap lyric from that song, from that rapper, you know who I'm talking about. It, it almost came across to me as if Ja were saying, okay, I told the adults what they wanted to hear. Now I'm back to being 1000% Ja. And he refers to himself occasionally in the third person as Ja. It came across as he was saying, I'm gonna keep it as real as ever. Did he really learn anything from what just happened other than he got off pretty lightly? He says he's learning to cope with stress. It's an ongoing issue for him. He says he has absolutely zero problems with alcohol, but I, I'm not sure what any or all of this means. I've got some quotes from the interview he did the other day, the ongoing process. Another quote, that clubbing and all is not on my mind at all right now. Right now? W will it be? It's fine with me as long as you have yourself under control. 
all this is just very baffling to me because he had deactivated his Twitter and IG accounts and now they're reactivated, though he says he'll stay off them more than he used to. What, what does that mean and how long will that last? I have no idea. Now let me tell you why I may be a little more sensitive to this than most people. I did grow up as the oldest in a broken home featuring not one but two problem drinkers, double alcoholics. I went through two rehab stints with my father during which he checked himself in and then within a couple, three weeks, checked himself out long before he was supposed to check himself out. And then he just checked out and fell right back to the bottom of the bottle. All those counseling sessions I went to, all those visitations at the VA hospital in Oklahoma City, all for naught. But my mom, God bless and rest her soul, finally broke down she looked in her mirror and she said, I need help and I'm going to go get it. And she went to Alcoholics Anonymous and it clicked. Now, my father was what I would call an all day, all night drinker. The minute he got up, the minute before he went to bed, he drank. He was always just a little drunk, but what was called a functional alcoholic was my father. My mom was a get drunk drunk. I'm talking about slurred speech, a, a fall down drunk. She could not function drunk. But she did go through AA's 12 step program and she changed and did save her life. Final 40 odd years of her life, she never took another drink. She also never ever missed her weekly AA meeting because she always said, I have an incurable disease and I have to fight it every single second. Never missed a meeting. But when my mom finally finished her 12-step program, her 12-step recovery, it changed her dramatically. She was no longer the same woman I grew up with. Now, her name was Levita. The, the pre-AA Levita was a strikingly pretty woman with this huge life of the party, take over the room personality. She had extreme energy with an egomaniacal edge to her, the likes of which I'd never seen, vainest woman I ever knew. But she came out of that 12 step, more subdued, more humble. Her, her charisma dimmed, not quite as lively as before, and definitely without her edge. took her losing her edge so she didn't lose her life. My mother was a changed woman. That's usually what happens 
when you go get this kind of treatment that takes more than three or four days. I, I believe that the 45 days that Tiger spent in treatment did change him. He lost some of his edge. He gained some humility. He turned into a much nicer guy after those 45 days. Monday night, I did not sense that Ja had changed one ounce. Maybe that will not matter. Maybe he didn't need to change. Maybe he just needed a reality check. Hey, wake up, kid. You're risking the $240 million that you will earn once your new contract kicks in next year. Maybe we'll go right back to being jaw, but without any more of the incidents. No more guns. No more IG lives. Maybe he did realize, I'm, I'm not about that life. Or maybe the NBA and the Memphis Grizzlies and John Morant and the people around him just got away with quickly getting him off the hook by duping us all into believing he had checked into a treatment center in Florida to take the time to get the help he needs. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's get to your question, shall we? This is Drew from Bellflower, California. Who do you want the Cowboys to open up with next season or open up next season against? Drew, I'm ready. I want the 49ers in San Francisco. Give me the team that knocked us out of the playoffs the last two years, embarrassed us the last two years. Give me the Niners at the Niners. That's how pleasantly shocked I have been by what my Dallas Cowboys have done so far this offseason. They never do anything in the offseason. As you know, Jerry Jones' mantra is, we build through the draft. That's because Jerry gets to run the draft. That's because Jerry has final say on every single draft pick. That's because Jerry Jones can go to dinner with his friends in Big D and say, yeah, I, I, I knew that kid could play. And I must tell you, they have been very, very good in picking players over the last 10, 12 years. Cowboys and Chiefs have been 1-2-2-1 in success in picking players in the draft. Yet, I just witnessed Jerry Jones preserve his mission statement, we built through the draft, 
while dramatically improving his team that did win a playoff game this past season without spending much more than pennies in free agency. There was no big plunge. So forgive me for waving my metallic blue pom-poms today, but I have been euphorically blindsided by what my Cowboys have pulled off while keeping a draft pick in every single round. They got their full complement, and they're way better than they were when they got their asses kicked at San Francisco by San Francisco in that playoff game this past season. They traded a compensatory fifth-round pick, an extra fifth-rounder for Stephon Gilmore? I'm talking about a lock Hall of Fame cornerback. I still think he's a top three cornerback. Maybe if you want to go five-ish, I'm going three because he can beat you now with his head as well as his body. This was an all-time steal for my Cowboys because this is just what the doctor, as in Dr. Freud, ordered for me on one side of my defense where there was a glaring weakness. There was a ruptured Achilles heel. There was no other cornerback opposite Trevon Diggs, who's, by the way, one of the biggest cluers in pro football, as in gamblers, as in guessers, as in I might pick six you or you might six point me. I needed solid. I needed stable. I needed credible. I needed Hall of Fame bound. I needed trustworthy. I needed dependable. And I got Stefan Gilmore, and I've always been a big fan of Stefan. It reminds me of when Darrell Rivas went to the Patriots 2014 for that one year later in his career, and all they did was go win a Super Bowl. Huh, you're kidding me. And he makes only $8 million a year? And, and you stole him for just the extra fifth rounder? And then you turned right around and for another extra fifth rounder and a sixth rounder next year, you stole a legit proven deep threat? Another gaping hole. Another glaring weakness. Filled, fixed, done, over with. Brandon Cooks, a cowboy? The same Brandon Cooks who has the pedigree of being on one team that went to a Super Bowl one year and then another team that went to the Super Bowl the next year. That Brandon Cooks. He is nothing but productive. He once ran a 4-3. He's 29 years of age. I think he's still on the backside of his prime, but still in his prime. Maybe he runs 4-4 now, but he can fly, and he knows how, and he knows why, and when the ball gets near him, he catches it. This will change life for Dak Prescott, who did not have that piece to the puzzle last year. And wait a minute, Houston says, oh, okay, we'll help here because we will pay $6 million of the 18 he's owed, so Dallas only has to pay $12 million? Are you kidding me? 
And then the Cowboys continued to amaze me. They've kept the four biggest free agent pieces to their defense. So, so these are players I thought could all be gone. I'll just call it three. I'm going to be... I'm going to be conservative. I'll call it three key pieces here. Donovan Wilson, Leighton Van Der Esch, Dante Fowler. Back, back, back. I, I thought we could lose them all. I thought we would lose them all out in the market. And speaking of back, Dan Quinn, the coordinator, is back. I was convinced he would be gone to be a head coach somewhere, somehow, some way. The unofficial head coach of my Dallas Cowboys is Dan Quinn. Hat on backward Dan Quinn. He, he's the heartbeat of the locker room. He's the leader of that team, not just the defense, the team. He's the energizer. He's the electrifier. So you give him Stephon Gilmore. And wait a minute. Bobby Wagner is still sitting out there available in free agency. Don't, don't let my Cowboys get a hold of B-Wags and talk him into taking an America's team discount to come play for the Cowboys and for Dan Quinn, his quote-unquote father of that defense, the Legion of Boom in Seattle. My goodness, we're already talking about very possibly the best defense in pro football. But yes, 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 I, I get it. I know, I know what you're saying. I'm still stuck with Dak. I was the first one to say I'm done with Dak. I'm stuck with please drop the Mike McCarthy. I get it. Mike McCarthy just ran Kellen Winslow out of town all the way out here to L.A. to the Chargers. Mike McCarthy won the power struggle. He did take over. He will call plays as he did for 13 years in Green Bay. I don't know. Maybe a fresh pair of eyes will help. Maybe now he'll actually do something for my football team but I've used it on Undisputed, and I'm going to use it again here today on this show. The cliche, a great cliche, a rising tide lifts all boats. It just might lift Dak's boat. Please drop the Mike's boat. Remember, there's some addition by subtraction here because Jerry Jones finally saw fit to cut ties with his quote-unquote son, Zeke, as in Ezekiel Elliott, as in Dak's best friend. Clear the decks. Change the scenery in the locker room. Zeke had become a team leader. But where had we gone with Zeke? Nowhere to, to speak of. Ronald Jones was signed for, I, I don't know, bargain basement. He made 1.5 at Kansas City last year, but he's a pro's pro. Ronald Jones grew up in the, the area right around where Cowboys headquarters is in Frisco. He went to McKinney North. He's a great high school player. Went to USC. High second round pick, 38th overall. He will give you an honest day's work. He will be better. Ronald Jones will be better than Zeke was any of the last three years when he got worse and worse and worse after Jerry made him the highest paid running back in pro football. I'm just here to tell you that 
without Zeke, all of a sudden the carries will be flipped and Tony Pollard, who's coming off surgery, but they say he's going to be 100% fine for training camp. Tony Pollard was a breakout star and he will turn into a flat out bona fide legitimate star running back this year. Another Pro Bowl season. And yet the carries will be flipped because I'm looking at the carries from last year. Zeke toted the rock 231 times to Pollard's 193. That's plus 38 for Zeke. That's just flat out wrong. That's going to change. Now Pollard will have the football in his hands 250 odd times. He'll catch it another 20, 30 times, 30 times probably. And Rojo will be the complimentary back. Malik Davis will be another complimentary in the stable of backs. I like the way this shapes up. I remind you, Rojo almost ran for 1,000 yards the year that Tampa in the pandemic went on to win the Super Bowl. Man, I, I'm starting to love this team. And by the way, speaking of drafts, don't let Jerry Jones see fit to draft a Dalton that we lost, Dalton Schultz, we lost to obviously the Texans, but don't let, don't let him see fit to draft another Dalton named Kincaid out of Utah. I love Dalton Kincaid. He's got some Kelsey in him. If at number 26 we get Dalton Kincaid, plug and play. Future Pro Bowl tight end. Just what Dr. Freud ordered for me. Man, Jerry Jones finally did something in the month, month of March. In fact, he did a bunch of huge somethings. He made my Dallas Cowboys significantly better, shockingly better, look out better. Yeah, I know. You think I'm falling right back into the Cowboy trap, but I, this time I don't think so. This has to lift Dak's play up just enough that, you know what? I'm ready. Give me Niners at Niners on opening Sunday night. This is Alan from Redondo Beach, California, not far from where I sit. What is the greatest game in Cowboys history? Now that's an interesting question. Unfortunately, maybe fittingly, the first two games that popped to mind were both Cowboy losses. Hmm. I'm talking to Pittsburgh in Super Bowl 13, 35-31 Steelers, great game, greatest collection of stars I've ever seen on one football field, but we lost. And then of course, early 1982, January of 82 at 49ers. Speaking of the catch game, Joe Montana to Dwight Clark, 49ers won or stole that game 28 to 27. Those are great games. But if you're talking about for me personally, the greatest cowboy fan game, just for me personally, the one that gave me the greatest joy and satisfaction occurred, this is probably before your time, but look it up, Thanksgiving afternoon of 1974.
I was just out of Vanderbilt University. I was working in South Florida at the Miami Herald. I was in my apartment on my couch watching this game from afar. My Cowboys had fallen behind 16 to 13, I'm sorry, 16 to three to the team I hated most. In those days, they were called the Washington Redskins who concussed my quarterback, my all-time favorite Dallas Cowboy, Roger Staubach, and he was down and out of that game. And here came some kid named Clint Longley, a rookie out of Abilene Christian, and miracles began to happen. Clint Longley? I just sat there in wonder on my couch down in South Florida saying, you're kidding. It's a 35-yard touchdown pass to a guy I got to know very well, Billy Joe Dupree. And that set up what happened with 28 seconds left, a 50-yard touchdown bomb to a guy I got to know very well in my days in Dallas, the great Drew Pearson. 50 yards for a touchdown. Cowboys 24, arch rivals 23. Thanks to Clint Longley? You're kidding. Never in my life have I enjoyed a game more than I enjoyed that Dallas Cowboy game. It was a little more than a year later, as a footnote to this story, that Clint Longley in Cowboy Training Camp, Thousand Oaks, California. This was on August 30 of 1976. He sucker punched the great Roger Staubach in the locker room. Maybe it's legend that has it, but I was told that Roger subsequently took him outside and beat the you-know-what out of him. But for sure, Longley sucker punched Roger. He was suspended and soon traded. Bizarrely, for a draft pick that helped the Cowboys vault all the way up to number two in the next draft and take Tony Dorsett. All's well that ended very well. Now, two other quick footnotes. The player that Drew Pearson ran past for the rival then Redskins was a player out of my school, Vanderbilt University, that I knew very well named Ken Stone, a young defensive back, a safety, for that Washington team. Very weird, as I sat on my couch down in South Florida. Beside me on the couch in South Florida was my childhood sweetheart. We had been broken up for a while. She was still a senior at Vanderbilt. We had just gotten back together. She had come down to South Florida for, to Miami for Thanksgiving. And that night, I proposed to her. We did get married. It was not a great idea. We didn't make it. We grew apart. But we had basically grown up together. We were together all the way through junior high and high school and college. And she was my best friend through some very tough times. And I still love and appreciate her.
Another question, Jeremy from, speaking of Florida. If you think you've done over 5,000 shows, which one would you consider your favorite? Good question. I got two, both based on record ratings because my life is based on ratings. My very existence hinges upon ratings. First one occurred on December the 12th of 2011. Remember Tim Tebow? Remember those Broncos who were one and four when Tebow got thrown into the fire so that John Elway and John Fox could just get it over with, get Tebow out of the way? Hmm. Tebow won his first game at Miami, then went on a run, an eight-game run, in which he won seven of those next eight games. The eighth game was one that was played week 13. It was December 11th of 2011 at Denver against the Chicago Bears. You remember the game? The Denver Broncos and Tim Tebow were down 10 to nothing with about two minutes left in the game. Remember what happened? Remember Marion Barber of my Cowboys and then of the Bears? Remember what happened when he ran out of bounds? If he just stayed in bounds, the game would have been over, but he ran out of bounds and Tebow had life and miracles ensued. Through a 10 yard touchdown pass to Demarius Thomas, about two minutes left. And then with 56 seconds left, Tim Tebow somehow drove his Broncos from his own 20 all the way down to the 41 of Chicago, and it took a 59-yard field goal from Matt Prater to tie the game. And Tebow took it over in overtime and drove for another field goal, this one 51 yards, and they won 13 to 10. I had never, ever seen anything like it. I'm not sure anybody else had either. The following day, on first take, we did a ratings number that I'm pretty sure has never ever been done on then ESPN2 and will never ever be done by any show that's a studio show, anything other than games. Games will outdo the studio shows, but, but no studio show is ever gonna do that kind of number on what was called E2. We threw a party, we celebrated. But what I loved the most was seeing my friend Stephen A. Smith's face, not a Tebow fan, that next day on that Monday. And then I must admit, I loved it just as much, if not more, seeing Stephen A.'s face after Tebow threw that touchdown pass in overtime to Demarius Thomas in that home playoff win over Pittsburgh. But this game, the Chicago game, was the record ratings game. Thank you, Tim Tebow. My second all-time favorite show occurred on this network here at FS1. It wasn't this past year's Dallas-San Francisco playoff game. It was the one two seasons back, the one in Dallas, won by San Francisco 23-17. to Remember the final play of the game? Dak escaped up the middle for 17 yards. The umpire was a little late getting 
home to spot the football. He got tangled up between players as he tried to step through, and they could not get the ball snapped in time to take one last shot at the end zone. And I went pretty nuts. The next day, I had to do the show from home, from my living room, because I had COVID. I had it pretty bad on that day. That was a rough one, but what a great day it was for Undisputed. We set an FS1 ratings record. I, I actually have a plaque commemorating that ratings record that Ernestine and I have actually put down in the floor, into the carpet, in the very spot that I sat on a chair and did that show that day. Thank you, Dallas Cowboys. This is JR from LA who asks, what would be the answer to a $1,000 Jeopardy question, who is Skip Bayless? This might just be the cleverest question I have ever been asked on this show. Jeopardy is our favorite show because nearly every Friday night, Ernestine and I, as I've said before, watch usually five in a row. We fast forward through the commercials. They're all taped, obviously. If you don't know Jeopardy, you have to answer the clue that's revealed with a question. So for me, I guess the clue would be he has long been America's most controversial sports commentator and can be seen daily on FS1's Undisputed. The answer would be, of course, who is Skip Bayless? Yet, my guess would be that probably none of the three contestants would know or ring in and the buzzer would buzz and I would be humiliated. This topic is about to be about Michael Jordan and about a phenomenon I have fought my entire career. But let me go a little back in time, give you a little bit of a flashback because my first encounter with this phenomenon came long ago, courtesy of my all-time favorite Dallas Cowboy interview. You might or might not remember Charlie Waters. Charlie Waters, all pro safety opposite Cliff Harris. Maybe you know him from his days as the defensive coordinator for the Denver Broncos, then he went to Oregon where he was the DC. I called Charlie back in those days that I covered the Cowboys, their poet lariat, not laureate, lariat as in lasso, as in cowboy. When it came to answering media questions, Charlie Waters was a soulful poet, so deep, so passionate about football and life. He's married to an actress slash model, and he could have been a leading man himself in Hollywood he was easily the biggest heartthrob on that star-studded America's team that did win two Super Bowls and played in three others. 
Charlie, you might or might not remember, played quarterback and then receiver at Clemson before he was drafted in the third round by Dallas and converted to first to cornerback. That didn't work. And then to safety, and that really, really worked. If I could have played football, I would have been Charlie Waters. So it was one Monday night during the 1978 Dallas Cowboys season. That was my first year as the lead columnist in Dallas at the Dallas Morning News. I was 26 at that point. Cowboys on their way to playing Pittsburgh in the aforementioned Super Bowl 13. So it was on that Monday night that I was asked to do a live radio interview before a live studio audience with Charlie Waters as the moderator was going to ask questions about media relations between star Dallas Cowboy and opinionated columnist. Pretty soon into that interview, Charlie Waters got a gotcha gleam in his eyes. And he said to me, and I quote, how much football did you play, Skip? Then he chuckled sarcastically as the audience responded with laughter. Okay, so the truth was I played football only up through seventh grade when I was the quarterback for a team of mostly eighth graders that went unbeaten during the regular season and then went to the city championship. This is in Oklahoma City. Championship game at Northeast High School on a very cold and windy night in early December that we lost to Daryl Porter's Southside Bears 42 to nothing, but we got that far. In eighth grade, I was chosen Athlete of the Year at Taft Junior High because of basketball and baseball. I stopped in eighth grade to concentrate on basketball and baseball, no more football. Did go on to make all area in baseball after my senior year in high school. That was at Northwest Classen. But on that Monday night in question, opposite Charlie Waters, that was the first time I'd ever been interviewed live in my life, radio, TV, anything. And I choked. I mumbled something about, well, I was a decent high school athlete. And Charlie dismissed me with, you don't know if you didn't play. And the live audience broke into spontaneous applause. I had been exposed. Nothing I wrote about the Dallas Cowboys should be taken seriously because I didn't play pro football or even college or high school football. Disqualified. So what had happened, I dropped my guard in large part because I liked Charlie so much. And I thought he liked me, lesson learned. The athletes you cover buddy up to you only when it benefits them only because of what you can do for them, not because they actually like you. You can never ever trust that they actually like you because they almost never do. Oh, how I wish to this day, I had that moment back. Was there ever an obvious touche response? with which I could have stopped Charlie Waters cold and rendered him speechless 
and embarrassed and humiliated him on live radio before a live studio audience. The architect of that Dallas Cowboy dynasty of the 70s and 80s, the draft master who kept bamboozling other teams by picking all pros such as Charlie Waters, that man was Gil Brandt, who's now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Maybe you know Gil a little better from what he does on radio as we speak and even in print for NFL.com. Gil always said that he played defensive back in high school in Milwaukee, but when I wrote my first cowboy book called God's Coach, I contacted Gil's high school up in Milwaukee and Nobody could find any record that he ever even played high school football. He was primarily a baby photographer when he talked his way into doing odd jobs for the LA Rams, then eventually started doing legwork for the scouting department. Back in the days, most teams didn't really scout much to start with. The Rams GM at the time was Texas E. Schramm, and he took Gil Brandt with him when Tech Schramm took over the expansion Dallas Cowboys. That was in 1960. By 1970, Gil Brandt, believe it or not, ex-baby photographer, had provided Coach Tom Landry with a Super Bowl squad. Gil Brandt was the draft master. And in the third round of the 1970 NFL draft, Gil Brandt selected... Charlie Waters. Wait a second. How did a guy who didn't even play high school football know enough to pick a potential all-pro safety in the third round? You don't know if you didn't play? Charlie Waters was a product of a man who did not play. Oh, how I wish I had had that knowledge and had the experience in, in the live radio poise to immediately respond to Charlie that night on radio, the guy who drafted you didn't even play high school football. Oh, how that would have shut up that crowd because that crowd considered Gil Brandt a god. Throughout my career, I have heard, you don't know if you didn't play. Heard it again and again and again. And again and again on live national television, I have demonstrated, I, I do know football and basketball. I've demonstrated that by out debating former stars who played these sports. I'll put my feel for football, for who can and can't play, right up against just about anybody's. Football, the, the one game I didn't play in high school. How did I learn it? Well, by watching it religiously and carefully by studying it and by talking football with some of the greatest coaches ever, with Tom Landry and Jimmy Johnson and my late great friend, Bill Walsh. And guess who I also spent hours talking football with? Um, Charlie Waters and Gil Brandt, yeah. Which brings me maybe abruptly back to Michael Jordan. Nobody is a bigger Jordan fan than I am. I think you know that. I wear his sneaker brand every day of my life on and off television. 
covering Michael Jordan, getting to know him a little bit in 1998, his last dance season with the Chicago Bulls, was simply the greatest experience of my career. I will debate you to the death, yours, that he was the greatest player to ever play any sport, any sport. But the other day, it was reported that Michael Jordan is considering selling his majority share of the Charlotte Hornets. To me, this was a sad admission of failure. As an owner, an operator, as, as a GM, as a team builder, the greatest player has proven to be the worst at picking players. W wait a minute, does this mean you don't know if you did play? I mean, look at Michael Jordan. Hornets, in his 17 seasons of owning and operating, three playoff appearances in 17 years, three and 12 in those playoff games, never won a single playoff series in 17 seasons. Can't pick his nose in the draft. I mean, Adam Morrison over Brandon Roy? Michael Kidd Gilchrist over Damian Lillard? Cody Zeller over Giannis, Frank Kaminsky over Devin Booker. I, I could go on and on and on, but I won't because I love me some Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Yet over the years, I found that by and large, the greater the player, the worse the ability to comprehend the game and why some can and cannot play it. Not that these greatest ever players didn't work hard at their sport. It's just that they're, they're just so supremely gifted, they don't really have to think about why they were dominating. That it, it just came so naturally for them that, that they then struggled to explain exactly why they were doing what they were doing, and they can't understand why others can't pull off the same feats that they did if the others just work at it and want it badly enough. Nope, nope, nope. Intangibles like heart and clutch guts can take you only so far if you don't have some tangibles. Trust me, sixth rounder Tom Brady did have or does have tangibles, great tangibles, underrated ballet dancer feet in the pocket, above average throwing velocity that was or is deadly accurate. I'm still not sure Tom Brady is completely retired. But you would be amazed how many times over the years I've been on live national TV debating a former star for the first time and I suddenly realize he has no idea. No idea. The truth is you can have played at the highest NFL or NBA level, and you don't know. That's why across the NFL and NBA and MLB, you see more and more GMs and team builders and draft runners who didn't even play their sport in high school, not even in high school. Howie Roseman, he's done a pretty good job, of, a pretty great job of building the Philadelphia Eagles, did not play football. Zach Kleiman has built 
the deeply talented Memphis Grizzlies we just talked about previously here on the show. He did not play basketball at all. I could go on and on. Could Zach Kleiman have done a, a lot better job building the Charlotte Horns than Michael Jordan did? Well, I'd hope so. I'm pretty sure I could have done a better job than MJ, the GM, did. The greatest turned out to be the absolute worst. And somehow I survived getting, quote unquote, exposed by my guy, Charlie Waters. This is John from Baltimore who asks, who's the nicest athlete or celebrity you've ever met? Okay. I hope you're sitting down for this one. The nicest was O.J. Simpson, Far and Away. 1977, the LA Times assigned me to do a story on O.J. the actor. O.J. the football player had just led the NFL in rushing for a fourth time for the Buffalo Bills. And now he was starring in a made-for-TV movie with a co-star I had long had a crush on. Maybe you know Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha, the witch next door on Bewitched, the long-running sitcom, one of my favorite and Ernstine's favorite old shows. I had a crush on, a crush on Liz Montgomery. Whew. So this TV movie was called, you ready for this? A Killing Affair. An eerie, foreshadowing, foreboding sign of things to come. In the movie, O.J. and Liz Montgomery play partner detectives who start falling in love as they chase a serial killer. Eerie, dynamic. I spent three days on set with O.J. He treated me like his long lost brother. Could not have been nicer and more accommodating. In my career, I have never encountered a bigger, more charismatic personality than OJ's. In those days, you probably don't remember, but OJ just owned the airwaves, the TV airwaves, in Hertz commercials. Go, OJ, go, as he ran through airports to rent his Hertz car. Big, deep voice, great sense of humor, great face, like a Mount Rushmore face. Just the camera loved that man's face. I was captivated by O.J. Simpson. And yes, I, I, I did sense some underlying edge because after all, he did grow up on the rough side of San Francisco and he did play football. And yes, I'm pretty sure he was just as nice to just about every media member he ever met, any media member who could help build his Hollywood brand as he was segueing into an acting career. But I did see OJ a couple times after that, ran into him or interviewed him again. 
He always remembered my name. He always remembered my background, where I was from. He always treated me like an old friend. And of course, you know what the nicest athlete I ever met eventually did. Bottom line, OJ was a great actor. Quick postscript, I did get to interview Elizabeth Montgomery for about 15 minutes as we both stood outside her trailer. And it was the highlight of my career. This is Mel from Virginia who asks, have you given up on Lonzo Ball? No, I have not. Mel, he's all of 25 years old. He pleasantly shocked me two years ago by completely fixing his wrong side of the face shot. Would you, would you believe that Lonzo Ball has turned himself into one of the NBA's best and clutches three-point shooters? It's 42% from three last year. Still one of the best defenders in the league. Still as fast with the basketball in his hands running a fast break. Still capable of averaging 10 rebounds and 10 assists. But you know the bottom line. Lonzo Ball can't stay healthy. Neither can his little brother. Now Lonzo is on the third surgery on the same knee. Could this be career threatening? Obviously it could be. God bless him, I hope it's not. Lonzo Ball has missed 138 of his possible 390 NBA games. That's 35% of the games he has missed. LaMelo Ball has missed 76 of 226, a possible 226. That's 34% of the games he has missed. 35% for Lonzo, 34% for LaMelo. I know their father pretty well, LaVar, such a tough guy, straight out of Compton. College tight end, tried out for the Jets, power forward in basketball. LaVar's got some badass in him. Now his middle son, seemed like the toughest of the three. I'm talking about physically and mentally, but the oldest and the youngest play with more finesse than force. I don't know. Maybe it has a little bit to do with them being a little too spoiled with a, priv a pretty privileged upbringing in Chino Hills. All I know for sure is if, if Lonzo can't get and stay healthy, then obviously I'll have no choice but to give up on him. But I am still hanging in. Alex from Lansing, Michigan. I'm going to give you the last word and the last question. Why would you bet on Baker Mayfield on one fourth quarter drive from the Rams. Alex, I, I don't like your question, but I do love that it represents the majority view of Baker Mayfield, the NFL's wrestling villain. 
I, I, I get it. He can be smarmy and cocky and show-offy. Again and again, I've had to say on Undisputed, no, Baker, no. It's a bad look. It's a bad idea. More bad publicity. I get all that. But Alex, Baker Mayfield has done so much more than one fourth quarter drive for last year's Rams. The Baker hate is so thick out there right now. It's so toxic. It's just unfairly overwhelming and obliterating all that he has accomplished. And he's accomplished a whole lot. Just drives me nuts. Yes, I was one of the few, I don't know, maybe the only media member who said Baker should go number one overall. And Brown's GM, John Dorsey, took him number one. Everybody loves Sam Darnold. I did not. A lot of people love Josh Rosen. I did not. I did watch every snap that Baker Mayfield played at the University of Oklahoma, because as you know, I grew up an Oklahoma fan in Oklahoma City. But again, for the record, Jason White, Sam Bradford, they won Heisman trophies. I said, do not draft either one. I was right. But here came Heisman winners, Baker and Kyler. Um, yes, yes, yes. Kyler, obviously more talented, but Baker had a whip of an arm, high football IQ, underrated escapability, and fire. He played with such fire that it lit that whole Sooners team, which finally lost in double overtime of the national semifinal to a loaded Georgia team. And that was with the worst college football playoff defense I had ever seen for those Oklahoma Sooners. I don't know how Baker rose above it, but he did. They called him the Pied Piper because those players would follow him. So what happened with the Browns that first year? Wasn't even allowed to start the first three games, and he yet wound up winning seven games for a team that went 0-16 the year before. He was the runner-up to Saquon for Rookie of the Year. Do you remember that, Alex? I do. I might be the only one. Baker did struggle with Odell, who was a close friend. He force-fed him the ball. Odell kept getting hurt, had three different surgeries in Cleveland. It was a disaster. But what happened when Odell did go down, tearing his Achilles, that he's now coming back from a second time. But the first time he tore it in 2020, what happened? Baker goes on that 11-game tear, 20 touchdowns to three interceptions. Cleveland won his first playoff game since 1994 by beating arch-rival Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. Baker was sensational in that stretch, graded fourth-best quarterback by pro football focus in that stretch in the NFL. Does anyone but me remember that? I think not. Does anyone remember last year's opener at Carolina against Baker's former team, the Browns? In the fourth quarter of that game, Baker Mayfield of the Carolina Panthers caught fire against his old team. He threw for 131 yards in just the fourth quarter. He brought his Panthers all the way back to lead 24-23. He was sensational. It took a bad call and a badly missed call to set up a 58-yard field goal that won the game for Cleveland. Remember? No, because Baker hate has expunged all memory of great Baker. One fourth quarter drive for the Rams, Alex? 
Sean McVay loved Baker, wanted Baker, signed him, brought him in for what was left of the Rams, started him on a Thursday night against the Raiders after one practice. And in the fourth quarter, Baker Mayfield threw for 141 yards. Think about that, 141 in just the fourth quarter. Didn't even know the plays. He led a 98-yard drive in eight plays that culminated in a walk-off 23-yard touchdown pass to Van Jefferson. Walk-off. He was throwing to nothing but backup Rams receivers. No Cooper Cup on defense. No Aaron Donald. No Jalen Ramsey. What Baker did that Thursday night was miraculous. Very few NFL quarterbacks could have pulled that off, thrown into that fire that quickly. That's Baker Mayfield, but nobody cares. At Denver last Christmas day for the Rams, what was left of them, he goes 24 of 28, Baker Mayfield, two touchdowns, no interceptions, a QBR of 86, that's scale zero to 100, that was high. I think it was the highest of that football weekend, nobody noticed back in his Cleveland days against the best defense in the division, Baltimore's. Here are four Baker Mayfield yardage totals against the Ravens defense. 376 yards, 343, 342, 342. I'm gonna do it again. 376, 343, 342, 342 against the Ravens by Baker Mayfield. Just one fourth quarter drive, Alex? Seriously? Baker's a bum. He's trash. America loves to hate Baker Mayfield. Wrestling villain. Wrestling heel. Now look, being cocky has always rocket fuel Baker Mayfield. He had to be cocky because he wasn't the biggest kid or the most gifted quarterback. He had to play with a chip on his shoulder pads. He, he had to trash talk and gloat and grandstand. That propelled him he, he walked on at Texas Tech. Then he walked on at Oklahoma and won the Heisman Trophy. Impossibly great. He couldn't just be the quiet, humble, six-foot-five-inch, six-four-inch Tom Brady or six-five Peyton Manning. In fact, when I read the quotes the other day from his first media session in Tampa Bay, Baker did start to come across as a little too humble for my taste, because he has been so humbled by that injury plague finally here in Cleveland and his struggles in Carolina early last year and then trying to survive with what was left of the Rams. So yes, I will admit to you, it is now surreal to me, a Baker believer, that Baker Mayfield is being asked to replace the GOAT Tom Brady. Really? Maybe it's just flat out unfair, given all he's been through. As he said in his opening press conference, I will never be Tom Brady because, look, nobody will. But Baker Mayfield can still be pretty great. He can be a pretty great Baker Mayfield. He's only 27 years of age because he often has been pretty great in the National Football League. Would you believe this will be his eighth head coach and his seventh offensive coordinator? I don't know, who knows, maybe this time it'll click, maybe it won't. But as Baker said the other day, I've played a lot of ball. Has he? Baker Mayfield has started 72 NFL games. 
he started 48 college games. That's a lot of ball. And he has a lot of ball left to play. I like his chances in Tampa. But maybe I'm the last man on earth who still believes in Baker Mayfield. That's it for episode 57. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his All-Pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.